Hi, this is Giuseppe. Hi, this is Anthony. And you're listening to For the Love of Sophia. A philosophy podcast brought to you by the Public Philosophy Project. If you have any questions or suggestions, feel free to email us at publicphilproject at gmail.com. Enjoy the ride. We are back to this second part on pre-Socratic metaphysics. Hopefully you guys are enjoying the different, uh, how can we say, vibe of this episode. I feel it's a little bit different from what we have had, especially in the last few episodes. Yeah, and I think it's, so there's a couple things that characterizes it, right, as being unique. And one is that we're, you know, looking at specific ideas from specific people, Mm -hmm. which we've only done to an extent in the past. And also because this stuff is like the most, like the the abstractest of the abstract, yep. I would say, right? The most metaphysical of the metaphysical. Uh, some people love that. Some people hate it. Um, and in the end of the last episode, we were, we got into, so we were talking about Heraclitus and then we got into this thing where like you are on board with some pieces and not others. And then for me, it's inverse. We got into this conversation about like this concept of change within staticness and what that entails. And you gave your watch as an example of, of something like that. And I had this question for you, which is that if you say that you do believe in a, in a one that's Mm -hmm. underlying the change, Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how you could say the one is is not static ultimately because I'm like if there's a one thing underneath it all doesn't that mean there's a limit like that that when you zoom in to the plurality and look at all the patterns the plurality is happening in doesn't there have to be one underlying thing that provides some ground that's non-arbitrary? Like, I, I'm having trouble understanding that. No, absolutely. I understand. Uh, so, one thing. I'm not necessarily saying that there is one thing underlying the change, but rather there is one thing that is what what Thales would say, the principle, right? This This one thing. That's not that there's something changing and then underneath there's the static thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's rather this uh, fundamental thing. It is always moving, always boiling over if you want. Got it. So, in other words, you would accuse me of uh, engaging in hypostasis where, like, I think that's the word, where, you're, where I'm making the underlying thing an extra thing rather than just the principle of the plurality. Is that right? Probably, yes. Yes, in a sense, yes. I also think that it's very difficult to think uh, of this plurality and of this constant movement of the plurality because of the way our language works. Mm. Our language, by nature, hypostasizes stuff. Yes, okay. And he makes it into because our languages 
rigid to some extent, right? The words are words. And so we had the tendency of projecting this into um, into our metaphysical reality, but it's not necessarily uh, the case. Mm. And this it, is, not to get too off, but this is Skinner's problem too. Because he'll, he'll say like, you believe in the self and free will because we say sentences like, she has a drinking habit. And like, so there's this she that's something separate from the drinking habit. So mm-hmm. maybe language. I think what I would say is... Um, it's not shaped so much by this. Well, I know exactly what you're going to say. Is it shaped by language so much as it's shaped by the confines of like thought and consciousness itself to which you reply? Well, that's what language is, right? Language dictates that. I was about to say, why? What's the difference between the two? This is funny. I think it's funny when we, when we kind of are like, well, I know exactly what you're going to say in response to this. Yeah, it's, it's like playing chess with somebody that knows you very well. And we're like, yeah, that's what's going to happen now. And then we're going to get there. And then we're going to get that's there. Good. That's but, good. Yes, yes. Because um, what? So how this relates to other pre-Socratic philosophers? I have like two in mind that we can still talk about. Is when we talk about this idea of there being a one underlying the many, underlying the change. Mm-hmm. With Thales, that was water, and with Heraclitus, it was like logos or fire or something. Now, what about Parmenides? This guy who says that everything is one and that one thing is being. That's so a little interesting fact. Parmenides is probably the reason why I study philosophy. I think I told you that already. Oh, yes, yes. I've definitely heard this story. But yeah, in you know, high tell, the, tell the viewers. <laughs> Just in high school, we studied, uh, eventually, we studied history of philosophy and we got to Parmenides, you know. And as soon as the professor explained to us how his thinking worked, like this idea of being as the only thing that exists and not being, whatever it is, mm. it's, it's not exist. And, and all that came with it, I was like, that's what I want to do. Mm. That's exactly what I want to do. And that's, you know, that's the beginning of the love story, if you want. Um, so, yes, he's an interesting guy. Um, and he has a completely so he's represented usually as being the complete opposite of Heraclitus, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he is the king of absolute immobility and the absolute not change and staticity, right? Is that a word? Staticity, I guess. Sounds good to me. <laughs> it would work in German, so let's yeah. say. Um, so yes. Uh, and he has this completely opposite idea that the the thing the only thing that exists is this being and all this change that we see, all those things that we see changing, not only it's just appearance, but we're being completely fooled. These are like hallucination for him. So here's mm. will be the difference that I see between him and Thales, for example. So Thales will be the guy that tells you, well, again, what you see, you see those things and you're right to see them. They're there. But underneath this, you have to think that there's a different level, right? It's like saying, well, you're looking at the phone and the phone is there. But if you had more powerful eyes, you will see that really these are atoms and nothing else, right? There's no phone. Uh, the phone is just the appearance. It's there. You perceive it correctly with the tools that you have. But there is an underneath layer, a more fundamental layer that has what reality is. Uh, well, with Parmenides. Uh, I 
well, it's not that I feel. I think, if I understood them correctly, that he will say, no, 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 no. The phone is an absolute illusion. Mm. That is a mistake that you're making because of the crappy way in which you're made and your senses <laughs> pretty much deceive you. So mm. everything that you see, it's not anymore appearance, but almost an illusion. It's like having, it's like we are hallucinating all the time. And we see different objects, we see different things, but in reality, none of this is. What is, is just this being that is, he, he says, is, is round and, you know, spherical and, and other things. But so basically, he says there's no difference. And the reasoning is funny because he says if there was a difference, then this being shouldn't be before, and then it's, it is, mm. and that's not possible. There's no generation. This is why he has those two books and like the ones called The Way of Opinion, right? And the ones like The Way of Reality or something yep. like that. Yep. And this, see, I want to say I'm almost on board with Parmenides I, here. I was about to say, it must be your cup of tea. So I feel like ideally <laughs> uh, where I stand is something like a combination of Thales and Parmenides where I, I the one... And then there's the different modes uh, and changes within the one. And it's just that the one, I think, is being rather than water. But th th this aspect of Parmenides uh, where he's like saying that appearance is illusory is, is very strange. Because whereas we were saying, you know, to reiterate what you said, with Thales, he says, oh, there's appearance and reality. And appearance is part of reality, but it's not all of reality. So there's something else behind the scenes, yeah. so to speak, right? Parmenides, according to this interpretation, is like, no, it is mere appearance. Which Absolutely. is very weird because you could take him on his own terms and be like, okay, well, if appearance isn't reality, then then what is it, right? Is it nothing? Like, how, how could it be happening if it's nothing? Isn't there some kind of being there if it is, if it is appearing? Well, I think he would say again that the problem is you. <laughs> the problem? It's not, it's not you, it's me. Uh, the, problem, the problem is is the fact that you, it's perception. And our senses deceive us. They make us believe, again, the same way in which language deceives you in thinking that something is static. Parmenides would say your senses deceive you in thinking that there is this, again, it's an, it, it's an hallucination, right? Mm -hmm. If you start seeing spiders all over yourself and you're the only one saying, like, whoa, 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 take these things off of me, take these things off of me. <laughs> yeah. They're not, they're not appearance of something else. Maybe they're appearance of mental illness, but that's, a, that's not what we're talking about here, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They are there, but they're not there. Right. And I think that what we see and touch and smell and all these things for Parmetis are the equivalent of the spiders. And it's so interesting because at a base level, he, I think he's correct because everything is, yes. right? There is, there is nothing that not is. And this is the kind of stuff where it gets tricky because you have to start speaking in ways that sound awkward. But yeah. like, there is no thing that is not being by definition, right? Because mm -hmm. if it was then it would be <laughs> and it would be being so if you do the ultimate socratic method right parmenides is like 
Socratic method before Socrates, and you look at the commonalities among everything, it's not water. It's not some of these other things. Like It, it is the fact that they are. That is the one universal commonality within everything. So that much I'm on board with. But I don't know. What do you think about this? Uh, it's, again, it's really interesting that you say that you're on board with this. But then what bothers you is the fact that appearance is not there, which I would think that, that you will like. That the fact mm. that, you know, again, we go back to what I feel. What I feel is not real ever. What I what the only thing that mm. counts is that being. Well, I wouldn't then, say ever. Okay, I wouldn't say ever. <laughs> okay, done. Then then it makes more sense, I guess. Now the thing is, though, I think it's funny that uh, that this this the only way to understand this, as you said, is to start talking weird, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm wondering how can we how can we explain this you know, more clearly? And I'm going to use words in a philosophically not pure way, I want to say. Okay. So I think that what you're trying, what, not what you're trying to say, what we try to say when it comes to, uh, to Parmides is saying that the things that all things have in common is the fact that they exist, right? I think that's the most basic way you can say it, yes. The fact that they exist, the fact that they share existence is what makes them real. Mm-hmm. And that the thing that makes things um, unreal is the fact that they do not exist. They're not there. Mm-hmm. Now, logically, we can say, if we are saying that the, the reality is this base level, everything that is not that base level, it cannot be. Yes, right, <laughs> right, right. So existent... Uh, and I think that oh, this is an example that's usually used with with the cart when he talks about substance, but I think it applies here too. I think that if we want to make a you know a mental picture of this this thing, we can think about it as a piece of wax, that's like good. a piece of wax that is devoid of all other characteristics, uh, plain, no color, no specific shape. Not that piece of wax mm-hmm. is what this existence is. Um, and everything that you can add to the piece of wax a specific color, a specific shape a specific use that you can make of this these are all things that are inessential to the wax and therefore superfluous and therefore Parmeida would say not real mm-hmm. that doesn't tell us anything about the wax I think that he goes a step further and he says those things that you think about colorship, those are not only inessential, they're like almost figments of your imagination, we can say. Mm-hmm. Not of your imagination, but of your senses in that case. Yeah, I feel like this is this is the issue. Like, I almost, I don't want to use this strong of language, but I almost want to say it kind of sounds contradictory because if things that are not cannot be, right, definition? Yeah, by definition, um, then the things you perceive and the things that you think are. They might not be in the same way, but they're certainly not nothing, right? They're not an absence. It's a presence of some sort. So 
to me, it makes more sense to say, okay, everything is, and there's different types of isness, mm. than to say like, oh, no is. Your thought is no thing, right? Like that. That's the part that gets me. Uh, but I think we need to be careful there, right? I think that there is a difference between um, the fact that you think, which is, mm-hmm. and the content of your thought, which is not for him. That is bizarre to me. So I think, I think that he would say, wait a minute, so are you telling me that if you think um, that the sky is, I don't know, purple or I don't know whatever color up, up green I've never seen a green sky okay. uh, the, the, the sky is green that makes the sky green that makes is that thought describing a reality because no, if it's absolutely not, not because if it's not then it, it is not it is just giving you an illusion so I, I think the distinction there is that there's one way of defining being isness existence in terms of like it only is if it is reality or perfectly corresponds with reality mm-hmm. and there's another way of looking at being or existence or isness which is to say that there are different types of being and you say when a certain type of being corresponds to another type of being like you're making a true statement about that type of being mm-hmm. right yeah. but it seems very bizarre. So, no, the sky is not green, right? So the referent, mm. like mm-hmm. you're, you're making an inaccurate statement about the referent. But the fact that there is a thought with content, like it's there. might not be yeah, true, no, no. but there's a, there's, a, there's a being it has. No, no, I understand it. And truth be told, we don't have much of the second part of Permade's book. Yes. So we don't have the part of the way of opinion. So it sounds even more extreme to us because... I mean, he writes, uh, full disclosure, what he writes is a poem, pretty much. It's a long poem, uh, which is, was the way in which philosophy was written back then. Uh, he writes this poem, and the first part of it, it is the way of being, the way of the truth, he calls it, uh, where this goddess explains to him, pretty much reveals to him, the fact that, you know, the only thing that, that exists is being. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the poem, though, the goddess says, but I need to teach you about the way of opinion and the way in which things are perceived by man because that's also fundamental, blah, 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 blah. And we don't have the rest of the book. So mm-hmm. we don't really know. It's like the, 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 the comedy part of the poetic from Aristotle. We don't know mm. what was their, their, their intent there. And I think that it would sound less extreme probably if we had that part or at least we will have more context to say that i'm always i'm thinking i'm always i always find myself like defending the ancients for some reason mm-hmm. uh, I, even when they say things that are obviously strange uh, like this thing from permides so there's mm-hmm. no denying that this sounds contradictory at some point so let me i want to ask a question so it is i will say obviously the case that truth is some kind of correspondence, right, between your thought and then the actuality. Um, you believe that, at least to an extent. I believe that. Um, and you're absolutely right. I don't think all feelings correspond to reality, right? So they're not true in that sense. 
However, what I was trying to explain, which I think is hard to explain, is that they, they both are, right? They both have a certain kind of being. And I'm wondering, do you agree with that or not? Do you think that thoughts, ideas have be like, I mean, I feel like a stupid way of asking the question is, do you think that all things that are, are, and I'm kind of, <laughs> I, yeah, no. I, I don't know if it's presupposing the conclusion or we're running into something that's like apodictically true, but like, what are your thoughts on this? I, so first let me say that Parmenides would say yes, definitely. Mm. That they exist, again, at least they are there, the formal aspect of it. Again, the 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 container is there. What he would disagree mm-hmm. is the, is the content giving you actually the, the 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 truth side of it, which I think goes in in your direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you ask me, I will tell you. Uh, well, yeah, I think they do exist. Actually, I give them probably more weight than than most. I think that there is a level. This is going to sound insane, but please. I'm very excited. <laughs> I think that there is a way in which this thoughts and feeling kind of shape this thing that is outside of us. Mm. And we see this. And again, I'm not talking about, uh, paradoxically, I'm not talking about feelings, but I'm talking about, uh, about methods of research, Mm. The way in which we inquire about stuff, right? Interpretation. The interpretation. The way you, the way you ask a question, will slice reality in a way that makes it different than probably what it really is in itself. And I guess we had an episode when we talked about this a little mm. bit. Mm-hmm. But the idea is there are elements to what we call reality, and this is, you know, a, a, a probably an extreme version of Kant, if you want. There are pieces of, of the real, of reality that are shaped by our thoughts and feelings and so on and so on. And that are, they're not, again, they're not invented. And some of them become shared pieces of it. Mm. Even though they're, they are, uh, I don't know, they're a figment of somebody's mind and they become a, um, an aspect of reality of everyday life, if you want. And again, there, there's there's the lighter version of these things, mm-hmm. uh, which are I don't know, all sorts of fictional characters that are now part of our imaginary and they're part of the world in which we live. Mm-hmm. Sherlock Holmes, Batman, or all those those things are real. Aren't they? you cannot say that Batman doesn't exist. Right, because right, you couldn't talk about something if it didn't exist. Exactly, you cannot say that Sherlock Holmes doesn't exist. Or that the, the adventures in which these people were uh, were involved did not do not exist, right? They are there. We talk about it uh, now. We can. Has somebody met Batman? Probably not. But <laughs> but that's that doesn't mean that he doesn't exist, right? Yeah. And these are the light example. This now there are other examples. Uh, the existence of I don't know some theoretical aspects of of quantum physics, right? Mm. That nobody has ever observed. Like quarks or something. Exactly. They are, and we don't even know if they're accurate, right? But they are representations that makes the world function in a specific way and that designs 
reality in a specific way. But they're not, again, they're products of somebody's mind that now is shared. So I wonder if we ultimately agree, if I were to think of like, you know, just a funny example, if I am picturing right now, um, you know, a unicorn eating an ice cream sandwich on your back deck right now. Okay. To see if we agree, what I would say, what I would say is that even though the thought and the content of the thought do not correspond to your actual deck outside that I would say the thought and the content of the thought exist just in a different way. Would you agree with that? Is this in a different way that I'm not sure that I want to commit to, to say yes. Mm, so I okay. don't know. I don't know how it is different. Got it. Got it. I don't, I well, don't know it's what, not the same. I, guess. I don't, I don't want to. The reason why I don't want to commit is I don't want to. I'm not sure what you mean by different. So I would say that because if you if you mean that's less real, I no no no, I completely disagree with that. Um, if you say I don't it's a different mode, that. if it's a different mode rather, uh, maybe. But we need to understand what these modes are and what do we mean if somebody has more dignity than the other one, and so on and so on. And this is a discussion that's super long, I guess. <laughs> okay, yeah. So I think. I'm going to say, go out on a limb and say, as with many situations, we probably mostly agree besides some hair splitting. But in terms of other pre-Socratic ideas, right, we talked about these, we've inadvertently talked about sameness and differentness. And now I wonder how this idea of proportion comes into things. And Mm -hmm. this is where it gets into Pythagoras. Yes. Another another, uh, very important piece of our the history of our discipline, right? Actually, first of all, Pythagoras is, seems to be the first one to use the word philosophy. Mm. He is the one who invents the term. Uh, and it's also... Uh, Pythagoras is this mythical figure, we can say. <laughs> uh, it's interesting because... So it's very difficult to distinguish between Pythagoras and Pythagorism mm. uh, because everything that... The, the school of thought, the school of philosophy, which is, by the way, the first school of philosophy that exists is Pythagorism. Mm-hmm. Um, everything that's said in there seems to come from Pythagoras. They they have this saying, uh, autos effa, mm. uh, which in Latin would be ipsa dixit, right? He says, which was the way they would teach this stuff. Mm. So it's very difficult to, to distinguish what he says from from what the school says and you you were mentioning proportion and they're famous because they move this all idea of principle fundamental reality completely to a different level so for Pythagoras was uh, sorry for Thales there was water for Parmenides is this being thing for Heraclitus is fire of change or or change for them is this thing that they call number and and i think that they are it's very interesting because and it's also very difficult for us to understand Uh, because from one side they, they seem to be clearly saying that the reason why the true reality is number is because reality can be translated 
in numeric relations, which are proportions, right? Uh, because you say, they say something like, and actually today I think the most, I don't want to say most, but some scientists will agree with them. Mm. Like they say things like the universe is governed by uh, numeric laws, yes. by laws that can be explained by numbers. And therefore, again, all those things that we see are all appearance. The real thing there are there are those proportions or those numeric laws. That's the real thing. Which is very interesting because you might want to ask the question, if something can be explained in terms of a set of symbols, is that the same thing as saying the thing, therefore, is the set of symbols? Um, they would say yes, but I think that we need to understand that the concept of number that we have is different from the concept of number that they used to have. Because mm. for them, it was a material thing. Again, paradoxically, is not, is not something that we invent with our mind, but it's something that is in the world, which is great. I always make this joke with the students. Uh, they don't laugh, but uh, we, we talk about things. You know, I say, there's no way you're going to bump into a number two or a number three. Yeah, they, no, they I, I love that. I, I've heard you say that, and I use that now. It's... Uh, and but for 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 the Pythagoras, you can actually <laughs> it, it does exist and and they are the one that realize for the first time very cool stuff they realize that numbers are responsible for many phenomena and basically the main thing is they think the music is nothing but math mm, mm-hmm. and they actually discover harmonies they discover like I think the fifty fourth and the eighth harmony or something like that mm. like the way you the, the, the way we like the Beatles couldn't exist without uh, yeah, without yeah. Pythagoras and Pythagoras. Uh, and again, those things, and they say those things are perceivable; they are real, they exist, and it's at least mind-bugging for us sometimes, right? And it's very interesting because one of the things I wonder is the extent to which Plato is a. <clears throat> I just coughed out of nowhere, and I'm like dying. Okay, hold on a second. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. So, I'm assuming you're I talking about air. Uh, you, you're thinking of how much Plato was influenced by this <coughs> for for the form stuff, right? Yeah, kind of. So, I'm thinking that Plato, like the Pythagoreans, obviously is very big on this idea that music is all about proportion, and it's all about harmony and then there's, there's some harmonies that are good and some harmonies that are not good and then in the Timaeus he's talking about the creator the demiurge creating the material realm based off of like some crazy obscure fractions so it's like these things are part of the very nature of the world soul and so I wonder if for someone like Plato um he he takes number to be the same thing because clearly there's an influence but at the same time i'm not sure plato would say that number is concrete he might say it's built into the world soul in the structure but if there's but if these things are forms then and then it is number as eidos um versus number as concrete reality and I'm, I, I don't know i think that plato would say that like everything else there are the numbers there are in the world of being and there, there are the numbers in, there in the world of becoming and actually that's what i was thinking there is there is a level in which I want to say that Plato believes that the world of being 
in the world of being, everything is on numbers, <laughs> in, mm. in a sense. Uh, but again, that's uh, that's governed by numeric. Again, as there's an whole aspect of this that actually some uh, some experts in Platonic studies uh, would would analyze. But I when I think about Pythagoras, I obviously think about this numeric aspect of thing. Mm-hmm. But I'm also very interested in, in and there's there's this whole thing about you know they split the universe in even and odd. Everything is either even or odd. Yes. And there is like this even is undetermined bad stuff. Odd is determined good. And there's this crazy thing that you know that for them the number one is not even or not odd. Mm-hmm. It's even odd. <laughs> and the the reason is is the only number that will make an even number an odd number and an odd number an even number if you add to it. And it, it seems like it's because it's that base. Yes. In some sense. Yes. So, but aside from this, this interesting things with numbers and stuff, um, I'm always, uh, I'm always interested in the fact that they are the first ones that kind of use philosophy in order to achieve the good life. Mm. The life that they're supposed to, the, 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 they trying to use science and philosophy as the mean rather than the end in order to achieve a specific way of life. And, and I think this is important. This is like, again, the first time this happens in history. And this is something that at the end of the day, we're still doing, aren't we? Seems like it. And I feel like the connection between proportion and goodness is super interesting um, Mm -hmm. because there's generally a positive connotation to harmony and generally a negative connotation to dissonance. Of course, there's exceptions to that rule when you get into like experimental music. But for the most part, that's kind of how people think. And that certainly relates to Plato, right? Like certain musical modes are like good and certain musical modes are bad because of, you know, the way things progress. And to try and start a ground for connecting numbers uh, to the good, I was looking at this this, uh, fragment here that uh, Sextus uh, Empiricus had. And the idea is that uh, Pythagoras believed in this thing called like the tetractus, right? And so the tetractus is a certain number which being composed of the four first numbers produces the most perfect number 10 for one and two and three and four come to be 10. This number is the first tetractus and is called the source of ever flowing nature since according to them, the entire cosmos is organized according to harmonia. So yeah. super interesting. And this is, it's interesting. It's even more interesting if you think that he has this description as two levels of explanation. On one side, you have the level of explanation that uh, you can think of immediately, right? The universe is harmony, right? And it is constituted by and everything by proportions and numbers and things like that. And in this way, the universe becomes for them cosmos, order, right? becomes this order thing. Uh, 
And attached to this, there's the idea that because of this, then thanks to numbers, we get to the truth. Because understanding this proportion, we understand what the tr- what reality is and we get to the truth. But there's also another level to this. He used to say that the heavens actually produce a music that is constant. So mm. right now, there is this harmonic music going on. That's beautiful. That... that and the funny thing is that when he was asked, like, how come I don't hear it? And he says, there are two possibilities. Number one is you're born listening to this music, so you're used to it. And mm. You don't hear it anymore. It's like part of the background. And the other one, it says, maybe you're just not, we're not, you know, made to hear it. But it's there because, again, there's this movement. And when things move, they move hair. And when hair is moved, there is sound. And so on and so on. So he says it's obvious that he has to be that way for him, which is crazy, right? It's, it, it's beautiful at the same time. Yeah, I wonder. So there's this connection between harmony and goodness because harmony is rooted in order, right? Absolutely. So order is something like, well, I don't want to presuppose the conclusion. I was going to ask you if you think the connection between order and good carries over to being itself. In what sense? Well, do you think that under these principles, something like disorder, which would be bad, would be like not being to the extent that it's like not logos? Mm, for 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 Pythagoras? Um, and I mean in general, just thinking about it. Uh, pr- I think that will lead to something that cannot be known completely, right? To all the opposites, right? Mm. If something is, I don't know if it's, well, if you cannot know it, then it becomes unknowable and then not be, yeah, probably, yes. I think that's probably, at least in the context of of Greek philosophy, definitely. Because the other way I I could see it going is like bad being. And you could say like, oh, chaos is is, is, but it's just not good is. No, I don't think... Mm. It's weird, I right? I just thought of that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I think that in certain Greek traditions, they might go that way. Well, Parmenides would say no, right? Mm. Uh, Pythagoras would, might, might say yes. Um, and I think, But I think that this, this association of good and order and bad and disorder and all those things is fundamental... Um, in this in this idea of living a life that kind of reflects the order of the cosmos, right? Um, I think that for them, at the end of the day, living uh, living well meant almost to to um, how can we say to reflect this order and these proportions that are in existence all the time. Um, which means for them actually to shed as much as possible mm. any aspect of our bodily life. They 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 are they take this thing from orphism, this idea of metempsychosis, mm. which is the transmigration of souls, right? We call it reincarnation now. Uh, but they they think that you know the soul, which is the proportionate part of it, the part that takes place that takes kind of um 
that is in contact with the harmonic aspect of the universe, right, uh, is the important part, and that it is when it is when it becomes flesh, when it's in flesh, when it's incarnated, right, is doing so because it needs to be purified because something mm-hmm. bad happened to it, and the way in which you purify is actually by thinking and through music, uh, and eventually getting to. Um, getting to the good life means for them living this bios theoreticos, this contemplative life, this speculative life, where all all you do is thinking. Mm. This is this constant purification that you can have. And I'm wondering if you, again, outside from outside of of, of their philosophy, I was wondering what you think about this idea that thinking and making and listening to music are ways are the best way to live life right that we should shed all our passions if you want uh, and we should achieve this this way of living that's rooted in really thinking Hmm. and and pretty much devoting yourself to uncovering the harmony of the cosmos I mean, my first question is like, what if that is your passion? Right? The thinking and music. Um, I don't know, though. I mean, I, the thing I'm wondering is like where this is coming from. Like, is this, is it coming from the fact that we have a natural tendency to quote unquote like order and dislike disorder? Right, and the two examples of, I'm thinking is like, if you have a chord, right? So you have like a note and then a third or a fifth, right? Like a very mm-hmm. basic thing. Like it sounds fine, it sounds good, and that's a certain proportion, right? But if you take a note and then play it at the same time as like a note that's one half step up from it, it's like very dissonant sounding, mm-hmm. um, or one step up from it is very dissonant sounding. Yeah. Similarly, I, I did this thing one day where I was straightening up the living room and there, on the, the coffee table, there was like a book and two pens or a pen and a pencil. And they were laid out on the table in a way where like the book was over here and it was kind of diagonal and like, you know, the one pen was hanging off it and then the pencil was on the other side of the table in a totally different direction. And I was like, oh, it just made me uncomfortable. And so I took it and I just arranged it in a nice way, right? Where the book was here and the pencils were perfectly straight next to it. And I looked at it and I was like, this is such a big, right. This is such a big (laughs) difference. And like, this is really weird that this difference, which in the grand scheme of like material universe means nothing to us is like, Oh, Oh my God. Like my anxiety is gone. It looks like so much a cleaner, good thing. And so, yeah, that's bizarre. And I'm wondering if this proportion, good order thing is ultimately, God forgive me, like a kind of psychological thing, or if you will, like a, a base fact about consciousness, maybe that'll save us from, you know, going into psychology. We'll just say it's philosophy of mind. Um, so first of all, I'm wondering two things. It's kind of the chicken or the egg thing, right? Mm. I'm wondering if we feel this way because of Pythagoras. Yeah, good, good. Meaning that 
probably this this obsession that the Greeks had for proportions eventually translated into Western civilization, mm. thinking that that is good or bad, um, which is possible. Or the other possibility is that order at the end of the day means predictability. Mm. And things that are predictable, generally, we can, we can kind of, um, can we say, control the outcome? Mm. Well, things that are unpredictable we cannot control the outcome and disordered things are unpredictable which will mean at the end of the day that these people observed this and they were like wait a minute this is what we need to um, to favor right and then they looked at the when the universe works the way it was supposed to be working we it's order we can predict the outcomes and things go in a specific way and if you think about it, it makes sense like agriculture right you plant the seed, it comes out, you mm-hmm. get, uh, and it's ordered, right? First the seed, then the plant, then the flower, then the fruit, uh, and all things like that, right? It's harmonic, if you want, there's mm-hmm. a whole thing. Uh, while the, if it wasn't that way, we would be in trouble, right? When that doesn't happen, when things become unpredictable, then they're bad for us. So order, predictability, good, disorder, unpredictability, bad, maybe? Yeah, I'm thinking a couple of things. Um, one thing is so is a question I have that's kind of floating in the background. Um, is this stuff about order descriptive or normative? Is hmm. it that this is the universe, or is it that this is what we should strive for because it has good consequences for us? Right. That's I, one thing I'm thinking. Hmm. I don't think that for the Greeks, or at least for, for Pythagoras, those two things are distinguishable. Yes. I think that, that you know, it is in their culture back then to... The, the, their normative stuff are the way nature is. <laughs> yeah, and I mean... Nature is the way. It's like the thing is the valence associated with the thing, right? So exactly. that, that's true. Like, you can't, exactly. you can't quite distinguish in the same way. But another thing I was wondering is so the predictability and order it makes us feel more comfortable it makes us mm-hmm. easy right and and beyond that it like allows us to live right because if to go to hobbs if you had to like look over your shoulder all the time this would be a terrible life we couldn't have nice yeah. things we couldn't have things period so that could be why we're drawn to it and you could say, oh, yeah, well, it's just, you know, being in accordance with nature to be stoic about it or something, right? Like to be the natural way is what we should yeah. aim for. Um, so it provides us with, with comfort, with longevity, um, w- with identity, right? Because you need these things to have identity. But another thing I'm wondering is like it also seems to just focus as a ground for intelligibility because you always understand things within a certain framework and the framework has rules and the framework has an order and it's through the lens of that order whatever it may be that you understand things right things show up as blank because of how they relate to the foundation so if someone if i look outside right now and someone's just like doing cartwheels naked down the street i'm like ah right because it doesn't it's not coherent within the structure um, and you know, I'm kind of Heidegger would call this something like a world, 
where there's these background beliefs, which he gets from Husserl, which calls attitude. But anyway, it's like these foundational things provide the lens through which we see things. And it's like without these grounds for intelligibility, well, without the order, we don't have the grounds for intelligibility. And without that, we don't have any sort of real understanding. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. Um, I always wonder if we can invert the thing. Okay, you know, that's a, that, that's a classic move, right? Yes, yes. We can we can invert the order of these things, and we say that those things that you call the 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 base, the ground, and so on, if they're not projection of this intelligibility that we use, right? Uh, in other words, because we only understand things uh, if we make them intelligible. Then we need to order them in a specific way. They needs to be they need to be seen in a specific way, mm-hmm. and I think that that is the direction in which they're going, in a sense. There is this these things are orderly because they can be understood, and not they can be understood because they're orderly. Correct. Mm. But this is as to, I'm not saying that this is the way it is. I'm just saying that. I want to say that if I look at the usual way in which the Greeks used to think these things, I want to say that that is the way. Mm-hmm. What was intelligible for them was real, not the other way around. And if you think of the way they think of people that do not speak Greek, they're outside of their culture, mm-hmm. that they're barbarians, they don't understand anything, that they don't get the way things really are, you can see that these two things go together. So what we call intelligibility it is what sets up the grounds for harmony and existence and everything else. So it's the other way around. I mean, this is just, I feel like, the conversation between ultimately what historically will be called uh, an argument between Platonism and Aristotelianism because now you have this idea of like, okay, is it the intelligible universal that's creating the base for reality? um, That's making the concrete particulars be as such or is it the concrete particulars that are coming first and are determining um, subsequently what the abstract universals are and throw numbers into the equation it's like where do they fall yeah um, absolutely and and it is that way because i think that both plato and aristotle were influenced by this guys um and if i had to throw a wrench into this i would say well, who is to say that these two things are really separate? Ooh, that's a good question. Because it's not, it's not necessarily, again, from my perspective, maybe they're not, right? The, 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 intelligible aspect, the intelligible aspect of reality and this material aspect of reality, they really are one, but not like Aristotle means it, like that they are together but separable. They really are meshed together, and it's impossible to, to, take, to pick them apart. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like, especially when we get into this universal particular stuff, I always was super interested in this. And so we've covered a lot of ground, I think. We did. Maybe too much ground. <laughs> <laughs> if, the, if, if we have people still listening at this part. Exactly. No, but um, but I think this this was an interesting way of looking. It's, again, different uh, from what we have done up to this moment. Um, but I think as interesting as the other stuff, I want to say because he gives us a window into a mentality that's not necessarily always intelligible for the non 
uh, initiated to, to ancient philosophy. It gives us a window into the beginning of this conversation that is still going mm-hmm. today. Uh, but at the same time, it leaves us with enough, it leaves us with enough questions that can be answered, not necessarily through the study of other philosophers specifically, but the regular way we do it, uh, usually, which is talking about specific topics or issues. And so at the end of the day, you have you know, all of these issues, substance, being, oneness, plurality, number. Um, yeah. How does the universe work? How right? Did, right, right. So the, all this stuff is functioning, and I, and I feel like this is always my favorite stuff to talk about. Um, and we just scratched. Like, we did a lot. I, I always say this. We did a lot, but also we just scratched the surface. Absolutely. I mean, there's the all... All the second part, like all the pluralist part that we didn't touch at all. Your favorite. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, there is a, there's a bunch, of, a bunch of stuff that could still be... And there's the relationship between all these guys, right, uh, that could be still touched upon. Um, but again, I guess that's for another time. I and guess so, right? We'll never run out of things to talk about. That's for sure. Uh, but I also think that uh, we might venture into more historical stuff not necessarily this ancient but uh in the future we have still in the works some you know some more specialty stuff that we need to talk about right that's true well to 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 reveal something to the people listening is like we've been recording these via computer screen since uh i guess march last march oh my god that hurts to say so we've been saving a bunch of the ones that we've been wanting to really do until we're in the same room. Yeah, until we could see each other again. Yeah, because it, it would <laughs> feel sacrilegious. Yeah, yeah, because we, you know, you can imagine uh, how we feel about this. We, we like to, to look at each other. To, to Not that we can do this through a computer, but it's definitely a different feeling. It's going right? to be like Flatland. I'm going to see you three-dimensionally across <laughs> from me. It's going to be this crazy I, experience. I, I'm telling you, it's going to be weird being in the office. Mm. Uh, it's going to be weird... Being with there's people that I haven't seen in a year. I feel like, like a dream, you. like you. I haven't seen you in more than one year at this point. Oh my god! It's it could, if, uh, but again, maybe we need an episode on that. But oh my god! <laughs> uh, there, yeah. there are many things. All right, uh, I guess we can. But you want to say something before we go? No, no, I'm good. No, okay. <laughs> All right, then I guess. Uh, you guys have a good day. You enjoy, hopefully, some nice weather coming your way. We're in the middle of the spring now. So you should be should be having fun outside and listening to the podcast on, with, with your headphones or earbuds while you <laughs> take walks, hopefully without a mask soon. Yes. So, uh, yeah, I think that's that. And keep an, keep an ear out, keep an eye out, because we're going to be rescheduling this outside event that we mentioned uh, last year in an episode. So I'll probably mention that in a future episode for you guys. Yep. See you later. See you around. Mm-hmm.